trolling, trolling for ten baggers. Trolling, trolling for ten baggers. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You're here with Joel and Sam. We're here to talk about finding 10 baggers. That's a stock that's gone up 10 times. There isn't much out there about how you find a 10 bagger, so we chat to people who've found them before. In the show, we talk to all sorts of guests about all sorts of different things, but just remember that nothing included is advice. Make sure to speak with a professional advisor about your own circumstances before making any financial or investment decisions. and thanks for tuning in. Ten baggers come from all sectors, whether it's a small cap technology or industrial company that grow their customers and revenue into something huge, a biotech with incredible trial results, or a drill hitting something valuable under the ground. And it's mineral resource companies we're talking about today. Even if mining companies might not be your usual cup of tea, this episode helps to explain and deconstruct some of the common stages that resource companies go through. So whether you're an active resource investor or just like to understand how different parts of the market works, I'm sure there'll be plenty to learn. In today's episode, we're joined by Alex Rivera. Alex has an extensive experience in geology and corporate finance and is based in Perth, Western Australia. In the discussion, Alex helps us to dissect and explain some of the common but technical aspects of mineral exploration and the stages that listed companies go through. This conversation was recorded in late March 2020. Most of the content's timeless, but the context and timeline is worth considering as the world markets were still very much in the midst of COVID-19 uncertainty and volatility. It's also worth noting for a couple of the stock-specific comments we mentioned in the episode. We hope you enjoy the conversation, and so without further ado, let's go into our chat with Alex Rivera. Well, good day, Alex, and thanks for joining us on the show. Um, obviously, you've got a very strong family background in, in mining and geology with your father, Tony Rivera, but how did that get you into finance and what got you into stocks? Yeah, thanks, Sam. That's a yeah, good question. So, look, fundamentally, I wanted to get into finance or investment banking with a mining focus, I suppose, because... Growing up in WA, we were clearly so leveraged to the mining industry. Um, you know, I studied both Bachelor of Science and Bachelor of Commerce at uni, so it gave me a good platform to try and pivot into either one of the verticals. Um, you know, funnily enough, growing up with my old man, Tony, uh, who was an exploration geologist and mining executive, you know, he actually originally discouraged me from studying geology, funnily enough. Um, perhaps it was due to the cyclical nature I'm not too sure you know he's been through a few cycles and seen commodity prices go up and down and you know, he'd been acting for a few jobs I think over his over his journey so look it's definitely not for the faint-hearted in that kind of um, way you look at something so I mean even for my own personal experience it's probably best personified when I finished uh, geology and, and finance in sort of 2013 I think it was or 14 you know, the only jobs going basically in the mining industry were iron ore. You know, it was Rio, FMG or or uh, BHP. So, you know, fundamentally, I didn't really want to be going up and sitting in the Pilbara summer, you know, drilling out big red hills. I wanted to be doing something in the precious metal space or base metals or something, you know, in the exploration game, which is a little bit more interesting. Um, but, you know, there just wasn't the exploration budgets. You know, the junior sector on ASX was in hibernation. Um so, you know, the ability to try and do what I wanted to do in the geology space was probably hampered a little bit, um, which probably serves as a warm welcome to what is the smaller end of the resources market that, you know, that you two gents and I certainly like to uh, to play in. 
Um, so yeah, I pivoted pretty much then and there into corporate finance where I still am today, um, but certainly with a pretty heavy mining focus. Terrific. Was was there? Were you having a punt when you were studying? Um, were you introduced to it early at a young age? Was there something that gravitated towards you as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, I think the ability to make money, um, you know, overnight, if you will, if you know, on the back of discoveries and successes with the drill bit, you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of sexy and exciting. So it's definitely something I was punting pretty pretty hard throughout uni with with a bunch of mates and trying to understand what was going on and. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely good fun. Um, clearly, it's not for the faint-hearted, um, and especially in current markets, you know, you got to be a little bit wise with how you do things. But yeah, certainly the the smaller end appealed to me. You know, both from a from a work perspective and also, you know, personal investing perspective. Okay, were were there any great success stories that you remember that really really gravitated you that you're comfortable sharing with, or any failures for that matter? Yeah, I suppose early learnings which you could probably call one of them potentially a failure. I'll be a little bit circumspect with the details, but it was in the corporate finance arena and it was an early client. We actually raised a bit of money for, they were going through a PFS into a DFS kind of stage. You know, there were, you know, potentially represented uh, a few things from management that potentially in hindsight you could say might've been uh, wishful thinking about a few things. Um, and you know the the myself and, and fellow investors into that company at the time, you know, did lose money. Um, and I suppose the biggest learning out of that from the failure, if you will, was just understanding and, and trusting management. Um, I think that's a big one for me. Uh, that so, you know, it's a guiding principle, and some of the things that I do now is is your ability to trust and back management. I think you know you two and all the listeners will agree it's it's the biggest thing. Uh, when you're looking at a management team, they have the technical ability to to, uh, to execute what they're trying to say you know on time on budget can they raise money how marketable are they do they have relationships with you know shareholder groups stockbrokers institutions have they made money for people um you know are they trustworthy there's some pretty key learnings i suppose that came out of what you could call potentially a failure early on um successes i suppose don't really have anything i can draw on other than you know i think that as humans, we kind of learn more from our failures than, than successes. Um, so, you know, earlier on in my career, that was that was a big one. I think that's something that I certainly relate to um, day in, day out now, you know, being at the coalface meeting with companies literally, well, pre, uh, pre-COVID, face-to-face daily. Um, it's certainly something you have to be able to, you know, trust and back a management team in. Brilliant. Alex, that's, that's, that's a whole heap of stuff you've shared with us. I guess I wanted to go back to maybe when you were a bit younger. Was there a particular stock or something that really just encapsulated, yeah, small caps, mining stocks, that's where I want to be? Not really that I can answer specifically from a personal investing perspective. I suppose the biggest one that's um, impacted my life would be the success of uh, Tony, old man. Um, he was pretty pivotal in the discovery of Cosmos um, with Jubilee. You know, I, I, this is going back near on 20 years now, I suppose. But I think you know that went from five cents and it got taken out by Extrata for 23 bucks. So I think in you know in this day and age when we're punting some of the small cap stuff, if someone said you can have a stock that goes from five cents to 22 to 22, 23 dollars, um, you know that's an enormous win. So I think that was one that was you know a pretty um, pivotal moment I suppose in in my upbringing um, you know being a teenager I suppose something around that at the time um, yeah it was pretty pretty exciting and it's good to see things like that um, 
you know, still happen. You know, serious. Um, you know, Sandfire. There's a bunch of them like that. So yeah, I think that's definitely um those sort of successes are why we're here. And from a geology point of view, you mentioned you studied that at uni. Had you, did you always have an interest in in geology from a from another age, or do you think it was that sort of big success there that really drew you? Well, not your success, sorry, but that observation that drew you to. Yeah, good question. Um, I suppose I went to do it originally, uh, and then funnily enough, Tony said, you know, maybe it's not the the greatest career choice. I think at the time, you know, the market was probably a little bit tougher. That would have been post high school. We had GFC, you know, that's 2007, 2008. Um, so, you know, I was doing commerce at the time. I was originally going down engineering and then did science and. Strongly enough, I was doing industrial chemistry and organic chemistry, God knows why. Um, and then luckily pivoted to, to geosciences and tell you what, they were a lot easier than doing you know, majors in chemistry. Um, so look, there wasn't really a, a burning desire to do geology. I definitely wanted to be in that mining space. It was probably when I was you know, a couple of years into my uni where I said, actually, you know, this is where I really want to be. Um, you know, I did want to go down that investment banking, corporate finance route. You, you're in Australia, you're in WA, you've got exposure to mining. Like it's, you'd, you'd be silly to think anything else. Um, you know, our biggest export coal and iron ore. Uh, so look, I think that was, you know, definitely why I wanted to have exposure to the geology space. That's brilliant. Okay, moving on to how we go about finding deposits or assessing it for investors or punters. What are some of the key factors that you think uh, need to be there to, to unearth a good deposit? Yeah, interesting. So I think when you say a good deposit, fundamentally a good deposit is something that can be mined, it's economic and it's going to make money irrespective of the cycle. You know, is it just because it makes money in today's current you know, spot price, whatever commodity it is? Um, I think, you know, fundamentally mining and, and developing a, a resource into, you know, going through the scoping, PFS, DFS, Gambit, then you've got to find the, the capital in terms of the CapEx and, and building it. So, it, you know, it is a 5, 10, 15, 20-year process, depending on the, the mine life. Um, so you've got to have a view that a good deposit is something that's going to make money irrespective of the cycle. Um, you know, that comes down to, to your CapEx and your OPEX, you know, open pit versus underground, the rough economics, what's the cost profile, um, you know, are you selling a final product? You know, is your market selling it to the Perth Mint or are you going through a metals trader and you're selling a concentrate? You know, these are things you've got to kind of understand before you even look at to the, the specifics. Um, specifically, I think you've got to look at, you know, something like geological setting. What are, what are they exploring for? How big could something be? Is there a geological analogue that says, you know what, this is a tier one deposit. It's going to be a cash machine for years to come. You know, something like gold, gold roads, career deposit you know that's going to be an atm for for years and years to come it's simple it's big and it makes money um you know that that is a, a fantastic deposit um you know something that i'll think about in this market you know probably wearing a corporate finance hat is the ability to raise money and capex is king and we saw that you know when you're looking at some of the cobalt stories of of yesteryear when you're looking at some of those big Scandium sort of cobalt laterite top deposits where the capex numbers were you know started with a B. Um, you know, are they getting financed? Probably not. Could be the greatest deposit in the world. If you can't finance it, then it's you know, it's not really worth anything. So you know, is it a deep underground? Are you going to need to spend hundreds of millions to get down there? 
you know, besides the prize has to be worth it. That's probably quite relevant, I suppose, for the porphyry hunt that's going on in New South Wales at the moment. Al Kane, Magmatic, you know, a bunch of a swag of juniors over there, Alice Queen, etc. So I think fundamentally it's got to have the size of the prize, which comes back to the underlying geology. Um, outside of that, I think location infrastructure, again, is huge. comes back to the financeability of something. But, you know, are you building your own process plant or is someone there to take you out? Can you share infrastructure? How far is electricity, you know, grid power? How far is water? Where's the nearest town for a workforce? You know, how are you getting your product to market? Are you trucking it from the middle of Africa to a coastline somewhere or are you flying out gold bars? Are you putting something on a train or a truck or a ship? You know, these are all things that are crucially important when you're assessing what is a good deposit because, you know, you could have the best geological deposit in the world, but if it's stranded thousands of kilometres away from rear end market, you're talking big capex, talking big opex, and these are barriers to being a production. They have to be considered because it doesn't matter how good something is in terms of is there rock in the, you know, is there value in the ground? Yes. Can you get it out and make money irrespective of the cycle? That's the question mark you kind of look at. And that probably speaks to commodity pricing as well. I mean, when you're looking at something where you're going to be spending years going through a study stage, whether it's scoping into a PFS, into a DFS, you know, that's two, three, five years, maybe longer then you've got your financing and your build. You know, it's no good if the commodity price falls off a cliff. Um, that's assuming it's publicly traded. It's even more difficult when things are you know, something like in the graphite space or some of those more opaque commodities or it's you know, quite difficult to understand what your, what your price point is. So I think you need to understand whether something can weather downturns. Um, I'm just trying to think of an example. You know, uranium space. You know, there's great deposits like Langer Heinrich or the Honeymoon. You know, that's uh, Paladin and Boss. But, you know, these are projects, great deposits, got infrastructure, ready to go, but the commodity price isn't there. So, that you know, they're in care and maintenance just waiting for the uranium price to tick up. You know, so these are all different verticals where you need to consider is something a good deposit or not. That's terrific. I think just to break up a little bit of what you said, Alex, the, the key takeaway is the commodity price has got to be sound. Uh, there's got to be existing infrastructure to keep operating costs and your initial capital expenditure costs down and there's got to be a good strong thematic. So if we can take uh, something that we're, it's quite common at the moment, um, quite popular, gold, uh, let's just assess for the moment that we're trying to start at square one. What what should somebody be looking at? How do, how do they go? Do they, can you explain the whole process from pegging ground to you know getting a drill sort of happening? Yeah, sure. So I think fundamentally it's got to begin with a sound geological theory. Um, why is there potentially an economic deposit there that hasn't been discovered before? You know, in Australia we've been doing this for you know, well over a couple hundred years. Why has it not been discovered before? You know, all the easy discoveries have been made. So in Australia we're looking beneath old mines. You know, look at Bellevue, King West, things like that. And then you've got tougher terrains like Patterson Province, you know, Rio's Winu, Antipa, all that, you know, these are by no means easy places to explore, but you kind of have to go there because you believe there's something material to be found. Um, so fundamentally, you need to have a good reason why you're going there and it's based on good geological theory. The size of the prize has to be worth it. Um, and then you, you know, you basically try and get your hands on some ground, whether it's free to peg or you got to do some transactions to try and build up the, you know, the exposure and the tenement package that you want. Um, and from there, you just got to scaffold the story up. You start with the basics. 
I mean, you could be starting with something that's a couple thousand square k's and you're looking for something that's half the size of a football field, you know, or the size of a centre square. So I think you need to understand that there is a process that gets done there. It's methodical and it's iterative. So, you know, you start with your basics like geophysics, could be aeromag, you know, detailed gravity, EM, IP, when you start to you know, hone in on a few things based on various mineralisation types. Um, broad scale geochem to understand you know, and delineate various targets. Um, and then you start to hone in on specific targets. You know, then you can do more detailed geochem, detailed geophysics. And once you start to really hone in on something further, you can do some broad scale air core drilling. You know, you're just getting through, getting through the cover into the fresh rock, you're tagging the fresh rock. That's giving you better uh, geochem information. Again, you take a step back and you say, what does this mean? You're doing it over a really wide land package. Um, but then you start to, you know, hone in on specific targets. So then after that, I suppose you're going in with, you know, RC drilling, you're doing deeper targets, you're refining them, and fundamentally you can get into diamond drilling. I mean, that's firmly once you've got a discovery, you've got a tiger by the tail, you know, you're not doing diamond drilling for fun. Um, so if you're starting with a 1,000 square k's in, you know, in West Africa, you know, it's going to be, you know, a long time before you've got a diamond rig out there. So you've got to scaffold the story up. It's got to make sense. Each set of results, I suppose, has to be viewed individually and as part of a wider story. Um, you know, you've got to try and assess what's coming at the information that you're getting day to day and making further decisions based on that. But it's certainly an iterative approach. Um, you know, finding tier one deposits is not easy. Um, and there's a reason why there's only been a handful in the last kind of decade or so on ASX. It's not, it's not easy. You know, we're looking undercover. You're looking at places where, you know, access is difficult. Um, you know, Patterson Province being one of them, you know, Fraser Range is another. You know, access down there is, is very tough. Um, you know, you don't have roads just going through, oh, this is where we want to go drilling. You know, you, you're spending weeks putting in tracks to try and get somewhere. So, yeah, it, it, it's interesting, but it, well, I will say it's, it's an iterative approach and you're just trying to build up the best story you can and just keep doing, you know, you've got a, you've got a huge arsenal to use in terms of geological information it's just about you know picking the right things at the right time and, and building it up fantastic can we just go back a bit alex you mentioned the different types of surveying that can happen the um ip em i think some other ones as well in the geochemistry could you run us through what the acronyms are for for starters and then the differences in those types of survey approaches maybe, maybe what they're used for yeah sure so i suppose the first two that are pretty widely used is is your magnetics and your gravity uh you can use that you know, over a broad scale, it's airborne, um, and it's kind of giving you understanding of the structures, what's happening basically under your feet if you're on the ground. So that's something that's like where they fly something under a helicopter, is it? Or yeah, exactly, yeah, helicopters. You can, they're starting to use drones for some of them now, helicopters, planes, things like that. So that gives you understanding of you know what potentially the structures are, what are the conduits to mineralisation. You know, is there you know is there faulting in the area? What 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 the, what is the structural setting basically? Why is there going to be mineralisation where it is? So there you probably first two of ports of call, um, and then things like specifically, and it depends on your mineralisation. But IP, for example, is induced polarisation. You know that you can use something like that when you're looking for you know call it base metals. Um, when you and that's that's a ground survey when you're basically putting a bunch of electricity into the ground. You turn it on, then you turn it off, and you see. Uh, is it still conducting um, now once you turn the power source off? So that basically tells you that you've got sulfide mineralisation and it's all touching and, you know, it's pretty, pretty, um, it provides a nice 
pitcher um, for a for a compelling reason to go drill. I mean, clearly not all uh, geophysical targets, um, you know, when they're drilled are what they're kind of hoped for or expected. Um, geez, there's been a lot of um, conductors drilled in the Fraser Range, for example, that was either, you know, salt water or, or graphite. So, you know, these are just these are tools, but they need to be considered um, in the geological setting and then and tested. You know, you, you, you're creating these targets for a reason, and that's to drill test them. And you find out pretty quick whether something's whether something's real or not. And you mentioned the geochemistry as well, there, Alex. Can you give us an overview of what that entails and what it's used for? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's not very exciting. It's it's guys on the ground taking soil samples, putting it in bags, and then you're assaying it. Um, you can start off really wide space. You know, you're hundreds of metres apart in terms of lines. Um, if you think about it, like a grid pattern, basically take a bit of bit of the soil, put it in a specific tray or or a bag. And then you you go walk a couple hundred meters, you know, do it again, do it again, do it again, and you're doing that in a big grid pattern, and that kind of gets you an understanding of any anomalism. You know, is there, under, you know, because fundamentally that soil cover is transported from somewhere, uh, but if you do that on a wide scale, and all of a sudden you start seeing some pretty strong anomalies, generally it's a pretty good indication that mineralisation, you know, is pretty close, potentially underneath it. Um, and then you go from there and you can you, know, you can do smaller and smaller infill geochemistry, um, basically trying to see if the if the rocks are trying to tell you what's there is, is important. So that's why I said, you know, potentially after doing some geochem, you do the air core and the air core drilling gets you into the fresh rock and you do the same thing again. You're, you're sampling the fresh rock, so underneath the transporter cover, so you know it's, you know, it's, it's primary, if there's mineralisation from the primary rock. So that's, that's the next sort of step in that in that process. Again, it's geochemistry, but it's 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 drilling. So you can do that on wide spaces, and then you you get all your um, information, you interpret it. You know, we like we like seeing as investors some nice pretty pictures in the in the presentations about why something's going to be drilled. Um, you know, I look at something like um, Legend at the moment in the Fraser Range. You know, they're uh, they're drilling at what was a geochem anomaly last year. Um, they're in a trading hold at the moment for something that looks potentially could be quite interesting. That good hit last year, and that was born from from geochemistry. You know, that was soil sampling. There was anomalous nickel, anomalous copper. They did air core underneath it, tagged the fresh rock, anomalous nickel and copper, and then you're doing some deeper diamond or RC drilling. Um, Galileo as well in the Fraser Range at the moment. You know, similar process. So they're kind of you know they've spent months and months and months doing the geochem and the geophysics and now they've got some pretty compelling targets and they're drilling you know Galileo's up what was it nearly 100% in a week and a half legends in a trading halt for some what's hopefully going to be material news so yeah it's exciting to see these stories come to fruition um, you know it's not everything when you're seeing the results is is going to be a mine I think that's something that you need to try and determine as the process goes on but it's it's interesting to see geological theories get validated by by the science. That's really terrific, Alex. I guess there's a lot of success stories out there, but as you rightly pointed out, there's there's quite a lot of drill bits that turn to, to dust and, and don't 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 uncover anything. So, I guess for people that don't have a geological background, what if let's say for example someone's out there going and putting um, an AC rig in uh, and they're trying to get past the cover and the fresh rock. What do they need to see if it's a gold? If it's a, if they're drilling for gold, what's what sort of hits do they need to 
see and, and what would be considered really good that would warrant extra drilling and what would be, you know, stuff that's not really good, I guess. And I know that's quite a broad question, but I, I know that's always on people's lips. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question, Sam. I suppose investors can get, I suppose, let down early on in the process when they're looking or trying to interpret companies' drilling results when it is, you know, air core or it is really, you know, early stage kind of preliminary work. Um, you know, you're not hitting 20 metres at, at 10 grams and, and, you know, the market's blowing up, but you might be tagging it, you know, you're doing an air core and you're into the fresh rock and you might get a metre at, you know, it could be you're running in the, in the PPMs, you know, it's not even a couple grams per tonne, it might just be, you know, 100 PPMs or, you know, 0.1, 0.2s, 0.3s grams per tonne gold, um, you know, that can start to build a material picture if it's representative of, you know, bigger mineralisation systems, you know, maybe at depth. So, you know, if you've got one one drill hit, not that exciting. If you had hundreds or, or you know, even if it was dozens in a, you know, a grid pattern, for example, or in a couple of fence lines, then, you know, it starts to build a bigger story. So, okay, well, this is clearly really anomalous why is that so where is it coming from um surely there's a there's a source somewhere it's nearby or it's underneath or maybe you know we've got some interesting air core holes let's put a couple rc holes underneath it um so i think it is in early stage exploration like that it is easy to just dismiss stuff um and and likewise with with air core and and even early stage soils you know it's about building up the picture and understanding why something why something's going to be there that's really good, Alex. And I suppose the obvious point is it's all relative to their indicative market capitalisation and the expectations that are built into the share price as well. One other thing I wanted to ask just following up from that is, you know, you hear stuff like, oh, that intercept's too skinny or that's too deep, um, you know. So can you just sort of um, dispel a couple of those myths? I think you, you mentioned a really good hit there, but maybe just elaborate a bit on some of those sort of bits for investors? Yeah, sure. I think fundamentally you need to understand first and foremost, what's the commodity and B, how's it going to be mined? So if you were chasing, you know, high grade, narrow, you know, gold veins in the eastern gold fields of WA, you know, you've got to understand whether something's 100 metres or 200 metres or it's probably going to be an underground mine. Like you're not going to be mining a 50 centimetre wide vein in open pit like it's just not feasible so you could have a great hit um at depth but you know is it going to support an underground mine so fundamentally i think you're going to, you got to think about how is this actually going to get out of the ground and then from there you can understand whether you know something's material or whether it's you know it's going to be economic or not um you know if you're getting one or two i mean here's two examples so I know both the stories well, so I'll, I'll draw upon them. Um, satin metals uh, near Leonora, you know, that's just shy of 800,000 ounces at one gram per tonne. Egan Street Resources, which was bought out by Silver Lake last year, that was, I think, from memory, 400,000 ounces at 13. So straight away, you're looking at something. One's got a resource at 13 grams. One's got a resource at, at one gram. You know, what, what's better? And you take a step back, you say, okay, how's this going to work? Egan Street is going to be, well, it will be now, certainly with, with Silver Lake having purchased it, an underground mine. So they're mining something that's 50 centimetres wide. You, know, you, you bulk it out, so it's probably a metre and a half in terms of the under, mechanised underground mining. Um, 
beautiful. That's an economic deposit. Silver Lake paid kind of 70 million bucks, I think, for it at the time. Um, you know, it's going to make a lot of sense for them. It's going to make them money. Um, similarly with Spectrum and Penny West for, for Remelius, you know, it makes sense for them. Again, that's only a couple hundred thousand ounces, but it's at 16. So, you know, yes, they're great numbers, but then you look at something that's, um, you know, one or two grams and it's open pit, like Gold Road or specifically Saturn that I was discussing, you know, 800,000 ounces at one, but it's broad, it's wide. So you're having an open pit mine, you're having one pit, so you're not dealing with mining schedule issues coming from 10 different satellite pits. You've just got one big old open pit um, and you can make money from it. Gruyere is a great example for Gold Road. Um, you know, that's one every one and a half grams or something from the top of my head. So that's, you know, when you're comparing it to um, Rothsay, which is Egan Streets or, or Penny West Spectrum, you know, the grade profile is incredibly different, but they can be both worth a lot of money. Um, so I think you need to fundamentally understand the width and the depth of the mineralization before really honing in on the grades. Yeah, I think they're really good examples because it just goes goes to show that, you know, that, like you said, the difference between a one gram per tonne or 15 gram per tonne seems extraordinary, um, but it really does depend on what the final outcome is and what the original mine plan, I suppose, is or what the market expectation for it's going to be. Yeah, it comes down, it comes down to cost structure. So it comes down to what's your capex and what's your opex. Um, and, you know, narrow narrow high-grade vein mining is supported because it's high-grade, um, broad, low-grade open pits. You know, it's significantly cheaper to mine and, and you can process a lot more dirt. You know, Regis have built a very successful business mining half-gram dirt. There's not many other companies, uh, certainly in Australia, that, that do it as well as them, um, probably all globally. You know, they've built a brand name and, and reputation on mining stuff that we in the market might see some drill holes at 0.5 and say, oh, you know, that's shit out. Who cares what, what's next? Um, so I think you just need to understand it's important to take a view as to how something's going to get mined uh, and you know, fundamentally who's doing the mining. Fantastic. And are there any other things um, or are there any good resources or places that you can point people to, to look at to sort of get an understanding of those, I guess, those um, approaches? Like, you know, it's easy to talk about them at a higher level, but where people can go and sort of educate themselves on how that pro maybe how that process works or all the things to start looking at perhaps yeah yeah good question not not too sure specifically as in as in a protocol i mean you can always just funny enough just just google things and try and understand um there's a lot of good online resources out there for people um you know for learnings about that uh in terms of different mining methods uh cost structures and and grade profiles i think i just try and keep an eye on the market you know i try and understand who's who's mining what grades and, and how is it working and what are they producing for vis-a-vis -vis other other mining operations um you know it's, it's pretty it's interesting to make comparisons between open pit and undergrounds and and different grade profiles and, and cost profiles i wanted to know alex um because your examples as joel mentioned very useful it's kind of almost the the market is telling us that at the moment that major or mid-tier miners are looking for a high grade and tonnage as opposed to sort of low grade. Um, is, is that theory, you know, going back to a, a satin or, or, or what have you, why, why are some of these smaller grams per tonnes not, not attracting more attention? Look, I think fundamentally you've got to understand why is a company looking to purchase an asset or a company and you know, is it material to them and why? Uh, you know, 
Saturn being one gram per ton, it probably, you know, it's fair to say I wouldn't truck as far, you know, as a as a Spectrum or an Egan Street. You know, grade profiles support, um, you know, operating costs and a key part of an operating cost is getting it to the mill. So, you know, if there was um, a mill right next door to, to Penny West, uh, you know, that's worth a, a lot of money to them. Um, Saturn, for example, you know, by the time you're trucking it um, somewhere, you know, it's going to have to be somewhat nearby. So that probably reduces your, your universe of people that want to buy something, assuming they've got strategic infrastructure, something, a transaction that comes to mind where that wasn't the case would have been Gold Road uh, and Goldfield uh, with Gruyere, obviously that 50-50 joint venture. I mean, there was no infrastructure near there, but Goldfield just recognised a fantastic deposit, uh, came in and purchased 50% of the asset level uh, and helped construct and, and build a mine. Um, so, look, I think fundamentally it's just got to make sense for a company to look at something um, and understanding whether something can truck or whether it's a metallurgical issue, whether, you know, there's any, you know, for example, if something refractory or, or something like that, you know, companies need to cover all those sort of verticals in their due diligence. And that's just another thing or another risk point that has to be, has to be crossed off. Yeah, terrific. You, you've mentioned that word refractory. What I've, I've meant, heard that mentioned quite a bit, the refractory ore. Can you just explain that? Yeah, sure. So it's basically gold where it's usually locked up in something like it's called arsenopyrite. Basically, it's the sulphide that hosts the gold um, and it basically encapsulates the gold kind of mineral, uh, as it were. So when it goes through the conventional you know, CIL processing uh, flow sheet, uh, it doesn't recover as well. So, you know, there's something in the uh, the Waluna Goldfields, for example, which has sent a, a few companies bust over the journey um, and a lot of money spent, um, currently owned by, by Blackham, um, where the recoveries are, you know, are, you know 60, 70, 80%, whereas in the conventional gold deposit, you know, it's, it's north of 90, 95. So the refractory nature um, just means that it doesn't recover as well. And predominantly that means because it's, uh, it's basically held within the sulphide mineral. Um, so to process it, you either got to grind it and crush it more or potentially flow to concentrate, then you can regrind the concentrate. You know, that's a pretty commonly uh, held flow sheet for companies dealing with refractory ore. Um, if it's, you know, in certain parts of the world where you can't use cyanide, then you just have to flow to concentrate anyway. So it's less important because you're getting good recoveries because of the sulfides, but, you know, potentially you're taking some of that um, arsenic with you from the arsenopyrite. So, yeah, refractory, it's, it's something to understand. But again, it's just one of those risk points that gets ticked off. Um, and it is usually quite early on in the process where it's, uh, you know, you're doing your preliminary metallurgical test work. goes back to your question, Sam, on what makes a good deposit. It could be, you know, a fantastic deposit in terms of grade and scale, but if the recoveries are, you know, less than ideal, then it just degrades the whole, uh, the whole sort of value of the deposit. That's really terrific, um, Alex. And I just want to mention the Waluna because I think we had another guest on before, and I've always referenced that conversation I remember having about that asset. And if you're talking about refractory ore, correct me if I'm wrong, does that mean that it's going to take a lot more? or and you need more throughput in the mill because that's always what I keep getting heard. Yeah, so specifically, uh, I'm not too sure what the current flow shed is at Waluna, but there is, yeah, there's different ways you can deal with refractory ore. One of them is um, 
what's called a biox plant, which I'm pretty sure is what is at Waluna. I'm not a metallurgist by any stretch, so this is a very crass explanation, but there's basically um, part of the flow sheet where there's bugs and literally they eat the, uh, the sulfides and expose the gold grains so you can process it through a conventional flow sheet. There's a lot of other processing flow sheet options you can do. One of them, as I mentioned, is, is just regrinding it. So you've got to grind the, the absolute bejeebs out of something. So that is a huge cost. Um, when you're looking at OPEX numbers, um, is electricity and power costs um, and even, you know, uh, refurbishing, you know, all the sort of the communition circuit stuff. So, you, you know, you're grinding and you're milling. You're going to have to grind something that's much smaller than conventional so that the cyanide can still access it when you're doing the cyanidation. Okay, terrific. So just so we can simplify to cover this off and move on to another topic, if we're going back to the high grams per tonne versus the low grams per tonne, this comes back to ultimately the, the cost to strip out the gold, doesn't it, the strip ratio. So ideally the more grams per tonne, the less you need to put through and, and run through and, and run through the mill, if, if that's correct terminology, right? Just to go back as well, Alex, on something you mentioned earlier or a few times, is the, the scoping, the PFS, the DFS stages. Could you talk us through those, what those acronyms mean and just the broad, those stages of the process as well? Yeah, sure. So scoping study is kind of the first economic assessment that the company will do. Typically, the company's had the discovery or the deposit for you know, a year or two now. They've honed in and on basically where the deposit is. They're drilling it out. You know, they've got a resource. Previously, um, until a couple of years ago, you could have used inferred resources. Now the JORC code in ASX stipulates that you have to use indicated and measured um, resource category, um, you know, ounces or, or pounds of met, tons of metal, I suppose. Um, so typically, you've got a resource, you've drilled it out to an indicated status for a scoping study. You do a really high-level assessment whether it's going to work. And by high-level, you know, scoping studies can be plus or minus 30%, plus or minus 40%. So basically, it's, it's you know, it's a detailed back of the envelope assessment. So you do that, you say, okay, is it worth spending more money on? And you get a really positive scoping study. You say, okay, excellent. I'm going to spend you know another three to five million dollars doing a PFS. So you're drilling it out further. That is a big part of the cost structure. There is drilling it out because you're going to need to get it to up into the sort of more measured category, which is going to drop through to your reserves for, you know, ultimately. But your PFS is just basically more more detailed assessment of the processing, the infrastructure, the permitting, what needs to be done, the geology, the drilling, um, you know, how, how it's all going to come together. So that might take another 12 months. Your PFS stands for your pre-feasibility study. Sorry, I should have mentioned that. And then fundamentally, you get a good tick off of that. Um, and then you go out and you, you begin your definitive feasibility study or, or final feasibility study. That, again, is just a, a more detailed approach. So your PFS might be plus or minus 20%. Your DFS is going to be plus or minus 5 or 10%. And by, you know, when I say plus or minus 5 or 10%, that's on your CAPEX numbers and your OPEX numbers and, and all that. So fundamentally, by then, you've, you've got mine scheduling. You've, your approval process is, is underway. You've got, you know, typically in line with the DFS, you're releasing your reserves. So that way the market can come out and say, okay, what are their company's assumptions for these? Um, and you can go through, you know, pricing assumptions, what the CapEx looks like, um, a big one, who's doing the studies, you know, which of the engineering groups the company was using, was it done in-house or was it signed off by an independent? Um, you know, it all just comes back to the veracity and 
the validity of the information. Um, but the company comes out with the DFS and the market can make a, an assessment whether something's, you know, is it going to make a lot of money? Is it financeable? Um, and is the project going to go ahead? I guess we haven't covered off talking about different types of commodities, Alex. I think we've spoken a lot about gold. Maybe perhaps you can talk about different drilling type, not drilling types, different um, drilling results that we want to see in different um, metals or base metals, uh, copper, um, zinc, uh, nickel. You mentioned nickel ladder right before. Maybe you can even explain that as well. Yeah, sure. So fundamentally, you just got to see, you got to understand what's the value of something per tonne um, as a commodity and then you can start to almost compare, you know, broadly speaking, back on by apples with apples. So you understand the current pricing of, of zinc and lead and where it is. Um, you know, it is kind of bottom cycle for zinc and lead. Uh, nickel, you know, was the flavour of the month last year, then came off 20 or 30% in kind of October, November. Um, copper, again, it's it's definitely off a lot. I think certainly at the moment it's to do with a lot of the global growth concerns, which is kind of being exacerbated, I suppose, by the coronavirus. Um, so fundamentally, I think when you're looking at what's a good percentage or what's a good grade for a drill drill hit and the different commodities, it comes back to what's you know, what's the value of, of that um, actual metal. So something like like zinc, uh, zinc or lead, you know, it, again, it depends if it's an underground or an open pit kind of operation, but if you're looking at something that might be open pitable, something like 10% zinc or lead starts to look pretty attractive. Um, copper, you know, if it's a big open pit mine, um, you know, 1% or less, you know, look at some of those, the monster copper deposits in South America are less than a percent. Um, but then you compare it to something like Sandfire, which I'm pretty sure the grass is going, you know, 6% copper. So fundamentally it depends, it determines, it, sorry, it depends on what the actual commodity it is and whether it's going to be an underground or an open pit. Silver, um, again, you know, it's, it's worth a fraction of what gold is, but you know, you could, you can get silver in, in fantastic concentrations, Something like uh, Adriatic's deposit over in Bosnia has got a fantastic silver credit. So, you know, I think if when 30 or 40% of your revenue potentially at the time is coming from silver, um, you know, it's, it's definitely, that's that's a truly polymetallic deposit. But, you know, that's a fantastic kicker to have when you're getting some of those precious metals come in. Um, one thing we haven't covered off, and I, I'm sorry if we've gone back in circles, but when does a, an open pit become an underground? Is there a certain classification or does it really just depend on the deposit? It depends on the deposit and fundamentally the economics. So it all just, it just comes down to the cost structure. You know, can you still make money mining it um, in the open pit or can you make more money from an underground? Um, you know, Western Goldfields experience in, in gold, looking at various mines around the place tells you that, you know, you can you can mine some of these open pits to you know, 150, 200 metres deep and then you start to look at, okay, the cost of actually getting that ore 200 metres vertically up, it, you know, it starts to really impact your, your cost profile and your all in sustaining costs. It might make more sense if you, instead of keep going down, uh, to, to put a decline in and all of a sudden you're doing underground mining. Um, clearly, the deposit's going to lend itself to that kind of mining, um, but fundamentally the decision made or you know, the decision to be made is is based on the economic assessment of whether, you know, can it be more efficiently mined um, in an underground manner or is it just can you open pit it? And, you know, there's plenty of open pits out there in WA that either didn't have the, the geological continuity or the grade profile at depth to warrant an underground. Um, 
but you know, there's plenty that did. So there's lots of examples where mines were open pits and, and then they go into undergrounds. Okay, Alex. So is there a mining contractor or an outsourced engineer that comes in and works out whether the company decides to go to underground or is this just part of that feasibility study? Yeah, it is. And as I said before, I mean, a lot of this process is iterative. Uh, you know, a company might start mining on an open pit and either have no idea or, or limited idea on the underground potential. Um, you know, they might have just had a few drill holes at depth that says, okay, you know, all of a sudden the grade profile is picking up at depth. Maybe we do have that potential, but let's mine down a little bit further and we can we can drill once we're actually down there. Um, so fundamentally, it's either done internally, would usually be done both internally and externally. So company mining companies will have you know, their mining um, engineers and economic geologists and guys that look at these things and say, okay, I think this is um, this is the deposit lends itself to, you know, after this kind of mining sequence or mining schedule, in three years' time, we're going to be transitioning. Um, yeah, and, you know, it is also ticked off. Companies do use uh, external kind of um, engineering groups as well for that process. Terrific. Uh Alex, you've given us a tremendous amount of information. Um, I guess probably just to cover off, because I'm sure anyone listening to this will um, be wanting to do their own research and questions and, and, and process all this like we are now. Um, I guess my favourite part of the show is is getting guests to nominate their 10-bagger pick, um, but pretty much we'll take any bags in this market, mate. So <laughs> you talk your book or give us a couple of good punts. Yeah, all right. Well, I'll be careful about talking my own book, but I will say that in this current market, there is, you know, if you're if you're brave, there is lots of bargains to be had in the bigger end of town. Like we'll we'll get to the we'll get to the spicy stuff, but I think, you know, there are some good names that I'm happy to own, and I've been buying um, recently because um, I just think, you know, if something's 30, 40, 50 percent off where it was a month ago. Um, you know, it's it's going to have a good value if you can if you can weather the storm. You're never going to pick the bottom. But uh, but sometimes it's it's nice to own a name when it's come off you know that much, you know things like Gold Road, Silver Lake, and Saracen, um, Norm Star when it was back in the nine bucks a week ago. You know some of these things have all bounced in the last week or two, but there has been good buying over the last couple of weeks in some of those names. Um, you know a lot of them moved thirty percent last week. In a liquid name, a thirty forty percent move is huge. Um, Getting down into the, the spicier end, look, I do have a lot of exposure to that space just by nature of what we do, I suppose, and, and what we like to do. Um, I've referenced it before, but I do uh, believe that something like Saturn's going to have a good future ahead of it. Um, Ian Bambury, the MD, is doing a great job there. Um, you know, that easily can have a million ounces on it uh, in the short term. And then all of a sudden, you know, you potentially look at something in the consolidation space or when you're looking around, you know, it wouldn't be too difficult for that to be a, a, a you know a legitimate mining company in the future. I think it's tapped at circa twenty or something at the moment. So, you know, that is something I'm happy to own. Um, something I know, Sam, that you along and probably me uh, as well uh, is certainly Oro Verde, or now it's changed its name uh, to Ionic Rare Earths. Rare Earths in Uganda. It's not for everyone, but I think the guys have got a, a really good deposit there and. I think that whole thematic of ex-China rare earths is, is pretty compelling. Um, it's something that the world needs exposure to um, and things like the trade wars and coronavirus just shows that, you know, sometimes having all your eggs in a, a Chinese basket is probably not the best place to be. Um, what else? I'll, I'll, 
being WA, I think the WA gold space is it, it's a great place to have exposure to. Bellevue is a name that I, I really like. Again, that's one that's come off. You know, it's probably off fifty percent from where it was. Um, pretty sure it was tickling, you know, sixty, seventy cents not too long ago, and um, you know now it's down in, in the thirties, just shy of forty cents today. So, that, again, that's a name in the exploration and development space that I think has got a lot of upside in it. Um, Anglo Australian is another one, which is actually, you know, I think it's fantastic. Again, it's an open pit style deposit, but that probably lends itself to a. Uh, to a potential corporate transaction just by nature of its location near some uh, existing mines. So I think I look at kind of what can go it alone, what's got the legs, something like Bellevue, what's potentially a, uh, a takeover target. And there's some names there that, you know, Musgrave comes to mind, some of the Leonora guys like Saturn and Genesis and MTM, um, something down south, Apollo might be a little bit far, um, the Rebecca deposits a truck, something like Breaker, Anglo. But there are a couple of names there, I think, in that gold space, which I think um, are going to have a good future, irrespective of whether there's consolidation. But M&A, I think, in this market is going to start to play a, a bigger role um, as these majors are going to start absolutely printing cash. You know, these mid-tier miners are, you know, delivering gold into 2500 bucks an ounce. It's just, it's unheard of. So I think these guys can bank a couple of quarters without any disruptions on the back of COVID. Uh you know, these balance sheets will start to grow and they'll be more acquisitive. Uh, and I think it's going to be great for the sector. You know, shareholders start to make money. You know, people made money from Spectrum. You know, one cent to, to 15 or whatever the Remelius price target is. You know, that gets bought out. People get Remelius stock and, you know, whether they sell it or hold it, but that's a good win for shareholders and then they're more willing to buy more so of other companies. So things like DeGray, I think that's, that's a fantastic discovery. Um, it's pretty clear to see that it's kept going up, even though the broader market's getting absolutely hosed. So that just shows you that what they've got's real. You know, something like that comes out to be two or three million ounces. It completely opens up a new a new province and sort of adds more value to their existing resource inventory. So that's a name I'm I'm certainly looking pretty closely at, doing a lot more work into. Um, so yeah, there's a few kind of off the cuff, mate. That's that's more than a few, and um, you're certainly flying the Western Australian flag very proudly. And uh, why wouldn't you? I mean, I think uh, yeah, we, I think we'll see a lot of M and A in this space. So um, yeah, some certainly some great names in there. And obvious disclaimer that um, we obviously hold or may hold some of those stocks mentioned, um, but certainly for for the punters to go and have a bit of a bit of a, do that bit of homework uh, and have a look at some of those. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you very much, Alex. There's some great thoughts and, um, yeah, insights for people to go and follow up on there. Really appreciate your time. No worries. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, Sam. Hopefully it was uh, of use and, I mean, it wasn't just too much rambling, so hopefully uh, the listeners can enjoy it. No, there's certainly been a lot of stuff in there that um, I've learned and I will definitely be re-listening to again, that's for sure. So thanks. Thanks, mate. It's been a pleasure. No worries. Thanks, guys. Too easy. Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from twinmusicom.org. Remember, the contents of this show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.